Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Tracy Drummond, archivist for the Southern Labor Archives at Georgia State University in Atlanta, where she acquires materials appropriate for inclusion in the archives, makes collections available for research, and provides outreach to university, scholarly, and labor communities. Tracy Drummond, welcome to Working History. Hey, good morning. Let's get started with a little bit of an introduction to the Southern Labor Archives. Um, Can you, first of all, tell us about the genesis of the archives and its mission? Um, Yeah, actually, this is a little story that's sort of near and dear to my heart. And um, the, the archives was founded on the Georgia State University and by a professor named Merle Reed, who was actually uh, very active in labor studies around um, like the late 1960s. And mm-hmm. he had gone to a um, labor history conference and met, I believe, uh, Pro- Professor George Green from UT Arlington, where they had already established uh, a labor archives, I think, in 67. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about that Um And so Dr. Reed came back and he was like, oh, well, I think, you know, we need one here at Georgia State since there's so much activity around labor studies right now. Um, And he actually reached out to the local labor community to start it. Mm -hmm. And they, within their community, were looking for a way to honor Joseph Jacobs. And Joseph Jacobs was a longtime uh, labor organizer uh, for textile workers. He was active um, during the uprising of 34, but he also had become a labor lawyer and, and had his practice here in the Atlanta area. And local labor folks were looking for a way to honor him. So when they were approached by Dr. Reed, uh, the idea became very clear for everyone that they would start having this sort of labor awards banquet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one honored Joe Jacobs, but the proceeds from it were to be set aside to help establish the archives. And so, and so, and Dr. Reed was also working with the folks at the library. It's called University Library now, but at the time it was the Pullen Library. And so, um, he was, you know, working with the library here at Georgia State to to establish room for it and funding for it and, you know, a budget line, all of that kind of stuff. So it, the all the paperwork was signed in um, 1969, mm-hmm. uh, and the first archivist started in 1970 when David Gracie was the first archivist here. Mm-hmm. And as a side, if I may, um, David Gracie, uh, before I knew that he had worked here, was actually my professor and my mentor and my advisor in my graduate program at the University of Texas. And so when I came to this job, it and, and I kind of put everything together, it was all that much more meaningful for me, of course, because someone that I greatly admire and respect uh, had started the archives here. So that, and when we didn't even have university archives at the time, so the very first collecting area here at Georgia State uh, was the Southern Labor Archives. Great. So as a whole, how do you see the collections in the archives as helping to tell the history of the South? One of the things that I really love about this collection because I have a very working class background, is that I'm able to tell the story of work and workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when people think of archives, typically, generally, they think um, this politician or this president or this general or this, you know, Mm -hmm. that that, that there are people who sort of have, you know, these larger, much more public lives um, than, you know, rank and file workers. And and so I'm glad that that there is a way to... uh, 
maintain that history and tell that history and share that history. Right, right. And so I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go on, go on. No, I was just going to say, so sort of, you know, when we when we think about telling the history of the South, you're telling a history of, uh, you know, sort of an inclusive, a more inclusive history of the South because of this archive in some ways. Right, exactly. And the story of labor in general is so difficult to see mm-hmm. in the South and mm-hmm. difficult to tell. Um, it, it, it's certainly sort of preserving that part of the story too, the people who organized, who wanted better lives, better wages, things like that. And I think, you know, and I think it's hard to tell that story in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so not only is it not told, but when you try to, you get pushback from people. So, um, you know, it's definitely preserving that part of the South's history. Right, right. And I think as well, it seems that um, the sort of history of Southern labor in a lot of ways is um, often seen as one that uh, either in the negative or as uh, a, sort of in a defeatist kind of light um, that, you know, labor in the South always lost. And it seems that some of your collections really try to rethink that and, and retell that story in a way. Yeah. You know, when I teach classes to, to the undergrads who come in for their History 3000 class and I'm like, so do we have unions in the South? And they're all like, no, of course not. I'm mm-hmm. in, you know, and then I get to point out to them things that they see every day. You know, every time they walk into a Kroger grocery store, every time they see a Georgia power truck or an mm-hmm. AT&T truck or it, people just keep it quiet. And I think that, you know, we have that legacy, of course, from the uprising of 34, mm-hmm. um, that, that people just don't talk about unions in the South in general because there is so much fear and, you know, stigma around it. And um, and then when I tell people, like, every time you're on a MARTA bus, the Falcons, our, our sports teams here, they've got a contract. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sure. Um, the, the, they really start seeing it a different way and thinking about it a, a different way. And they're really surprised to hear you know, any Kroger you go into, no matter how small the town in the state of Georgia is organized with the United Food and Commercial Workers. So it's it's like things that, that reflect their everyday lives. And I think that really surprises a lot of folks. Right, right. So let's talk um, more about the um, specific collections that are that are in in the archives okay, and okay. and um, maybe veer toward the digital collections since those seems to be the most accessible. Right. You don't actually have to travel to the archives to see those. So could right. you talk, first of all, um, about what the range of content is in terms of your digital collections, what's covered in them, um, you know, what, um, maybe what time frame, you know, they, they span and those sorts of things. Okay. Well, the digital collections actually go across all the collections here at Special Collections and Archives. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the Southern Labor Archives, um, we do have university collection. We have popular music and culture that has a lot of uh, really fantastic um uh, broadcasting collections and, and when I when we say popular music it's more like that great um, you know songwriter style from like the 40s on mm-hmm. Johnny Mercer is sort of one of the the uh, cornerstone collections mm-hmm. uh, for popular music and culture but it also has broadcasting and they there's even like a fantastic comic book collection as part of that now yeah. uh, we, we have the archives for research on women and gender mm-hmm. which was um, in a couple of other women's collections started with the idea to sort of document the attempt to pass the ERA in the state of Georgia but it's really grown to include uh, a lot of different activist women organizations and individuals and to include the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a social change collection because we've got a lot of social change between labor and the and the women and gender stuff. We've got a lot of LGBT collections. So we started a social change 
collection that is small Mm -hmm. um, and is only a few years old to sort of capture collections that maybe don't easily fit into either, you know, women or labor. And we also have a great Georgia government documentation project uh, that was sort of started uh, by Cliff Kuhn and added to by different people who had written about government in the state. Uh, it's not a collection that grows, but it is a collection that we service here. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we have a lot of really fantastic photograph collections, uh, commercial photographers that worked mid-century in the Atlanta area, but then also the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Photographs Morgue. You will see all of those and more covered in our digital collections. I just wanted to bring that up because I mm-hmm. think people would go there and, and what this isn't labor and yes and that's why because it, it covers everything in the department sure. and when and when we start looking at items to put in there you know um i think it's always about access but it's always about what's going to have the biggest impact and be the biggest use mm-hmm. and then when we look at a really big project like uh in 2010, we applied for a grant to digitize the PATCO records that we have here. Mm-hmm. And the in 2011 was the uh, 30th, I'm bad at math, 30th anniversary of the strike, 81 to 2011. So we sort of thought, like, let's apply for this grant now. This was a very important strike in mm-hmm. the history of the U.S. And so um, we put that on the uprising of 34, which had so many access issues because of all the video. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we, we looked to put that on there to make it more accessible. And it was both an access issue, but also a preservation issue because with all the, all the media, um, certain of the, um, the videotape, uh, time has not been kind to it. So we were glad to put that up. Um, and then more recently, the Eastern airlines collection and the, and Eastern is a little different than most of the, because so much of the stuff I have here really directly relates to the labor movement and Mm -hmm. unions. But, um, with the Eastern stuff, we have stuff, of course, from the Airline Pilots Association, the machinists, and the uh, transportation workers. But then, like Frank Borman, who was president and CEO for a long time, we have his correspondence from his time at Eastern. Mm-hmm. We also got the collections of two PR people, one at the Miami office and one at the Atlanta office, which, you know, have, like, press releases and photographs and information about destinations and, you know, so just you know, really this wide overview of day-to-day operations and the work of the airline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were able to reach out to a woman who had, who worked with, um, oh, forgive me, I can't think of the um, ad agency now, um, a New York ad agency, to do all these really great um, early 70s commercial, radio commercials featuring Orson Welles for Eastern Airlines. Mm-hmm. And they're as hammy and drunk as you can imagine, but they're still <laughs> fantastic. Um, and and so they're for, all for different destinations. And so we were actually able to bring together content from all of these varied collections and put them into one collection that really tells a lot of different stuff. You know, so it's not, we're not just focusing on the Eastern strike mm-hmm. and, and shutdown, but the entire history of the airline and and their advertising and their employees, you know, white collar and blue collar to just really tell their story. And it's, it's very rewarding. We have an exhibit coming up soon about Eastern too, like a physical exhibit. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I feel like it's something that will be a great research use to folks. And, and so when we are thinking about digital collections, we think what's going to have the most impact, what's going to maybe like with uprising of 34, what's hard to access. So Mm -hmm. my approach is always, 
sort sort of founded in those two things. And then we sometimes like with Patco Enterprising of Thirty Four, definitely require grant funding mm-hmm. to get the, to to get the because they're such big projects. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not every and not everything has grant funding. Some of them are smaller. We digitized our Stetson Kennedy stuff. A lot of folks know who Stetson Kennedy is. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could just and, remind us for those who don't. Uh, okay, Stetson Kennedy was this fantastic civil rights, human rights, just machine and author. He was an author. He's probably best known for infiltrating the Klan Mm -hmm. in the 1940s. One thing that that led to was him um, uh, having the charter for the Klan revoked in the state of Georgia in the 1940s He um, after infiltrating them. But the other part of that story is that he was also telling their sort of secrets like their secret handshakes and and information about their meetings to the folks who were writing this superman radio program Mm -hmm. where there's a book that came out maybe 10 or so years ago now that had that information in there and then there was a big retraction and and and, um freakonomics was the book and Mm -hmm. about about that particular story and um but there's also a a drunk history episode about Mm -hmm. specifically about that and i believe that it's been picked up for a movie treatment Mm. at this point so um so but i mean but he did so much more than that i mean he was involved with the works progress administration in florida he ran as a progressive candidate in the in the state of florida he was a really good friend of woody guthrie um and they they have a long history together and he just i mean he passed when he was like 93 or 94 and just a few years earlier had been like at a march in washington marching with you know kids mm-hmm. and he, he was just he was such a vibrant person and such a lively person and so you have that collection and it's digitized yes. or no it is yeah digitized. Okay. yeah it, it is i'm sorry yeah that was a long maybe that was a longer description than you wanted you but, know. Um, <laughs> but there's so much there's so much to say about stuff in sure yeah. and um and uh yeah so that is, that is digitized and um you know and then we have like some photo collection you know a few smaller things but mm-hmm. um the Eastern one has probably been the most rewarding to be able to tell all different aspects of the story. But then, of course, that causes some problems for me because I've got my white collar donors who are like, the unions caused the strike and the shutdown. And then I've got my union donors mm. who are mm-hmm. like, well, it was all the management and blah, blah, you know. And so, sure. it's, yeah. and of course, I have my opinions about how all of that went down. Um, but, um, so you have these sort of competing interests that you're the mediator yes. for to try to get this information out to a broader, broader public. Then, yes, and I feel like I feel like it being like you know almost twenty five years out from that. I think now that mm-hmm. that we that we can talk about it and sure. not still be angry. Although people really do carry a lot of still carry a lot of um, resentment about Lorenzo and the way he did the airline. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you're collecting, um, you had talked about, you know, when you're choosing what to digitize, its mm-hmm. impact, its preservation, it's a number of things. So how then does that process play out when, you know, for example, with the Uprising of 34 collection, which is giant, you know, it's this huge, massive amount of information about the, the 1934 textile strike. So how do you how does that process work to get it then online? Do you sort of do it by chunks? Do you? Um, you know, do you just sort of do s- small parts that you think are the most important and then work back if you can? Um, how does that work for you? Okay, so for people who don't know about the Uprising of 34 documentary, I'm not going to go into the entire history of the, the strike, mm-hmm. but the documentary was started by um, 
a few uh, filmmakers that sort of grew out of this um, Southern Textile Workers Project. And they wanted to go around and interview people who had been there during the strike and, but they weren't sure what story they were ultimately going to tell in the mm-hmm. documentary. Mm-hmm. So as they started doing that, they interviewed so many people. And then some of it's just like shots of like where old mills used to be. And um, there's this, you know, one great section that they're recording at an African-American Catholic church in, I think, South Carolina. Um, and and so really getting into the communities there and understanding how the communities function. Um, the documentary ended up being about an hour and a half Mm -hmm. and um, really focused on sort of like the shame and hurt that came out of the strike for the workers and how the workers were blamed. And they, you know, some workers were killed, others were harassed and roughed up. They were blacklisted and not um, able to be hired at any other mills Mm -hmm. in the area. So it, it really impacted all of these communities. It was mostly North and South Carolina, Georgia, um, Alabama, and Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And so the doc- and so the documentary was small, but there's like almost 300 hours of footage. So when we wrote that grant for that, we got an NHPRC grant for it, and we included, we worked with Crawford Media, who's a local, um, they do all kinds of stuff, but but the what we use them for is digitization. So we work with them to get a quote, and then we worked with um, a transcription uh, company to get a quote for transcripts. And when we submitted the um, the grant application, it included not only you know hiring someone to kind of do all the work here, but to pay for those costs. I mean, that was primarily it, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting all that work done. So with something like that, we didn't have to make decisions about what about what to do. Mm-hmm. We we were lucky that we were, you know, awarded the grant and were able to do all of it. So fortunately in that case, we didn't have to pick and choose. And the full interviews are up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't edit anything to put online. So it's all there. So what um, what new collections have you brought in into the archives lately, and what new is in the pipeline? So some of the newer collections that we're working on, you know, we have some education collections here. We've got a couple of AFT um, locals here in the Atlanta area of Fulton County, but there is an organization called the Georgia Association of Educators that acts like a union, although they are sort of really uncomfortable. You know, I was like, so were y'all AFL-CIO affiliated, and they were like, pearls were clutched there's this no you know this and I so so while their organization does the same thing a union would do it just doesn't have the AFL-CIO affiliation sure so we brought that in and it's processed and we're digitizing their periodicals one of the interesting things about that collection though is that it there were two predecessor organizations the Georgia Educators Association um, and the Georgia Teachers and Educators Association, one was white, one was African-American, and they sort of come together around 1970 when when the state was finally like, okay, schools, you need to integrate now. So right. they really tell the, um, the story not only of the integration of schools in the state of Georgia, but also of these organizations. And I'm really excited about that collection. I think it'll have a lot of use. Last year, we also brought in this fantastic collection of materials collected by a woman who was an administrator at the Grady School of Nursing, which is here in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. part of the uh, Grady Memorial Hospital. Mm -hmm. And with that collection, I mean, she's got phenomenal stuff from like maybe the 
I mean, some things sort of, you know, bits and bobs back to the early, you know, 20th century, turn of the last century, but this really nice chunk of stuff mid-century forward to tell the history of the work and workers done there. Um, and I, Grady, the hospital actually has an anniversary, maybe 110 or 115 next year. So we brought that in and we're working on it. But with the Grady stuff, we've also start already created a digital collection for them. And we've digitized yearbooks and we've started putting oral histories up oh, for the Grady School of Nursing stuff. Because I'm going back to talk to women who went through the program, not only women who, who work there as administrators, but women who were students there. And what is fascinating, but not surprising, are the differences in stories that you'll hear from the white women and the African-American women about any aspect of the work. And so um, I feel like that's going to be very interesting and also very useful because, and we also have a, a nursing program here at Georgia State. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's always great when we can add to our nursing collections to, um, you know, for their use. Mm -hmm. And then there was, there's a woman named Deborah Katz-Pichel who is a donor and she worked for the FAA. She was an air traffic controller. She started in the seventies. And she was harassed so thoroughly that she, um, I think, filed the first sexual harassment lawsuit against the U.S. government. Oh, okay. And so we've started getting her legal records. And, and some of her personal stuff will come with that, too, because mm -hmm. it's all... This story has been so much of her entire life. It's not like the lawsuit ended and then everything moved forward. It's mm -hmm. sort of been ongoing, if you can imagine, since the late 70s and early 80s. And um, and so that that's sort of, and I think that'll be really interesting. And it'll have interest, too, for the folks coming to use the women and gender collections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I and it's really unlike anything else that we've got. So I am also quite excited about that collection. This might be a tricky question, but uh -huh. what, what is your favorite collection that you have? The M.H. Ross papers. Okay. It's not tricky. I mean, I think that all of the collections here, um, you know, some of them are evidentiary. They just tell you that these things happen at this time. Mm -hmm. Some of them are more than the sum of their parts. And some of, you know, and some of them are only like their parts. Uh -huh. But they're all important in telling the story. So, so. So, so, so when I say I have a favorite, it's not to be confused with. It's the best anything. one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But M.H. Ross was just a man of such fine character, and he was a labor organizer, mine mill and smelter workers. He moved his family around a lot. They around the South. They got you know he got harassed a lot by folks. And then once the person he was renting from found out he was a labor organizer, then, you know, the family would get kicked out of the houses. But he, he, he ran as a progressive candidate, I believe, in North Carolina. He studied law and he was not allowed to take the bar because he was accused of being a communist. Mm. And he um, ended up later in life working with uh, coal miners in West Virginia. And we've got like maybe close to 200 oral histories that he did with them, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, a varying length and varying topics because um, he was working on a book about coal miners. But he also dedicated like his last years his, of his life to um, sort of being a community liaison to help miners with all the medical problems mm -hmm. that come with being a miner. When we get personal papers in, they're often pretty relatively small collections. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's like these are the awards I won and these are the positions I held. Mm -hmm. 
But with his, it's it's unlike anything else we've got here. It's as wide as it is deep in terms of topic. Uh-huh. Like it's not just subject files. It's like, you know, entire sub series sure. of information about different topics. And and it's just it's just a really phenomenal collection. And it's it's great. I'm. I hope I don't sound too gushy about it. But it's just really. <laughs> it's such a great collection. And, and that that might be a good segue into into the the last bit that I was hoping that we could talk about. And that is um, a question that kind of revolves around what makes things archive worthy, right? Mm. From an archivist perspective, what is the best way? Well, a couple questions related to this. What is the best way for individuals to preserve the history of their involvement or perhaps a family member's involvement with the labor movement, number one? And then number two, um, you know, say you find a box of miscellaneous records from grandma or grandpa's time in the union or mom and dad's time in the union. What do you do with it, right? What makes it something that is you know, interesting family history and what is something that makes it archive worthy? What's the difference? Okay. I love the term archive worthy. So, so number one to preserve history, it, you know, it's good for families if they've got, um, thing, you know, think like we will often get families who are like, well, I found, I found, um, all of my grandfather's deuce books and mm-hmm. deuce books are like these little sort of leatherette covered books that are maybe like four inches by two inches that they would put stamps in for each um, month of a year that they paid their dues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it usually has a little info in the front about the local number and maybe what kind of work they did and the person's name. And people are always like, so I'm going to kind of answer both questions mm-hmm. at at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, do you want these? And it's, well, we don't, because that doesn't tell us. It won't give a researcher enough info to really, like, dig in. It's not it's not information rich. Right. And we have so many examples of them, it's not like we need additional examples. Mm-hmm. And in terms of preserving history, you know, there are some basic things that we would tell anybody, which is, you know, don't keep stuff in the attic, the basement, the garage, or an an, um, air-conditioned storage unit, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just, like, the top level. And then, you know, there are, you know, there are different, like, um, companies that sell archival supplies usually have a family kit, which is, like, a manuscript box and some acid-free folders Mm -hmm. and some photograph sleeves. So there are ways for them to actually do a little bit of, you know, preservation Preservation. work themselves. Mm -hmm. And then the Northeast Document Conservation Center has an amazing variety of flyers for textiles, for digital records, for, you know, Mm -hmm. for everything. Um, Preserving history too, while people are still alive, label your photographs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who are these people? Where were they? Right. But But then the best way is always to sit down. And I think, and I think the most important way, the best way and the most important way just is to sit down if if you still know this person or know people that knew this person well and talk to them and record their histories. That's mm-hmm. always that's always the best way, I think, to to really get the picture because allowing people to tell their story in their own words is just, you know, as incredible as, as it is to have a letter or a photograph, to hear their voice and hear their story, um, I think is just so so very important. So I've been in this this summer. It'll be my tenth year in this job, mm-hmm. and for a variety of reasons, we have to really think about what we bring in, mm-hmm. uh, including space, because it's not just labor. You know, I've got all the collections here. You know, sometimes when a union wants to donate stuff, all we really need from them are like their contracts, if they've got meeting minutes, if they've got a newsletter. 
you know, mm-hmm. maybe some membership roles so we can kind of track how membership changed over time. Not so much for a genealogy or who was their perspective, but like a numbers point of mm-hmm. view mm-hmm. and some financial records and not routine ones like cancel checks or bank statements, but like audits or financial reports or sure. stuff. And, the, and, the, and, and with that, we can really have a full understanding because sometimes it's all pretty straightforward with the union and they don't have, you know, a big strike to talk about or, you know, collective bargaining woes. And then some unions can really, you know, like with PATCO, really have a much bigger story to tell and that, you know, they were on a national stage. What I have learned in these 10 years, that's when I started it with that, is that sometimes I can go into a local that's merging or shutting down or maybe just needs more space and that, you know, for whatever reason they want to donate stuff. And I can go in and I can like say, well, we really only need these few things. Mm -hmm. And then the, the more stories a local has to tell, the the typically the more stuff we want to get from them mm-hmm. and or, or or unions in general, I guess not just locals. And then we always try to do um an offer to do oral histories with, you know, some of the retired folks or people who have been in, in the in you know, in the job, an officer for a long time or been around a long time, so that we can get the the story behind the story. It's good that it it tells us what they did and that's important. Mm-hmm. But it's not always this bigger story sure if that makes sense and it's hard and it's sometimes hard to tell people that when they're Uh so proud of like look at all these five thousand boxes of grievances right right and i'm like i only need five percent or five boxes whichever's less right right. so it's sometimes hard to tell them and then sometimes people will call with stuff and they're like oh um i've got this charter for this local how much we buy it and like well we we aren't able to purchase collections right well, then I'm just going to sell it on eBay. I'm like, well, good luck to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, we, we can't buy it. And But I probably wouldn't purchase a charter because it just gives us such a very limited amount of information. Mm-hmm. The thought process is there are like so many things to consider sure. when, you're, when you're going into a place and looking at the stuff. So. Right. Well, no, I mean, I think that makes sense because, you know, even with anything that's old or antique, I think the assumption automatically is, oh, it's valuable because it's old automatically. And I think the yes. same thing. Oh, this mm-hmm. is automatically something someone's going to want. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if there were 10,000 of these particular tables made that are still out there. Yes. That's not unique, right? It's more sort of what's unique, what can contribute to this, you know, this sort of bigger picture, um, I think, that is what you're trying to get at. Am I, am I taking that away? Right, right. So what, do, what either sort of accents mm-hmm. or, or, or expands upon information we already have, what covers gaps where we don't really have anything, mm-hmm. and, and, and what does it in a way that it, that it provides a, like a really information-rich document or set of documents right. to, to tell of that story. Um, like, like I had a woman once send me a picture. Her husband had marched with Dr. King mm. and she's like, look at this great. I'm like, Oh, like, but if it's the only thing we don't know, we literally don't know anything else about this man or his life or what he did. Sure. Or even if he even knew Dr. King, I mean, a lot of people were at those marches, you mm-hmm. know, and somebody's can like a family can look at that and be really proud but it doesn't really add to the historical record. Right. And there's that, a difference there. I think that's the key issue, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. But what you're saying is that people can contribute by getting these stories from people down um, on the record, on tape, on video, whatever it might be. Yes. And and so sometimes where we might not want the documents they have, if they wouldn't mind sh- sharing an oral history with us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we would definitely take that. 
because that's more information rich than just a, you know, a handful of items. Okay, well, that gives us a whole lot to talk about and potentially um, some marching orders to to go out with our iPhones and, uh, you know, voice record a bunch, a bunch of people yes. talking about their time in the union or, or the civil rights movement or whatever it might have been. So, yes, definitely. Um, okay, well, Tracy Drummond, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks again to Tracy Drummond archivist for the Southern Labor Archives at Georgia State University in Atlanta. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 